That was not the way it was at the time Peter was writing his epistle to these folk who had been scattered throughout what is today modern Turkey. Jesus Christ was not reigning over the earth in a political sense at that time. A man named Nero was. As an introduction today, I just want to give you a little biography of snapshot, as it were, of Nero. The Emperor Nero was born on 15, 15th of December, 37 AD. After the death of her first husband, Agrippino, Nero's mother, married the Roman Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 AD. She persuaded him, Claudius, to name her son Nero as the emperor, as his successor. Nero came to power in AD 54, at the age of just 17, following Claudius's death. Well, Nero focused much of his attention on diplomacy, trade, and enhancing the cultural life of the empire. His reign was later marked by ruthless behavior towards those who opposed him and stood in his way. He was brutal. Because of the interference and the controlling actions of his mother, Nero even had his own mother murdered in 59 AD. We have... Many records of the life of Nero and the events of his reign from early historians, for example, Tacitus and Suetonius. In in his book, The Lives of the Twelve Caesars, Suetonius described Nero. This actually cracked me up when I read it. Described Nero as, quote, about the average height, his body marked with spots, his hair light blonde, his features regular rather than attractive, his eyes blue and somewhat weak, his neck over thick, his belly prominent, and his legs very slender. Suetonius, not exactly a flattering portrait. As I've said before, in AD 64, the city of Rome burned for 10 days. Actually, 75% of the city was destroyed. 75% of the city, the great city of Rome, was destroyed. And many Romans believed that Nero started the fire to make room for his planned villa, which was called the Domus Aurea. He had plans for a glorious rebuild, and what better way to make room lay the foundation for this than to have most of the city destroyed to make the room. Thus a major wave of persecution began until the end of Nero's life in AD 68 because Nero blamed the Christians. When he came under suspicion as to be the cause of the fire by the Romans, then he blamed the Christians and persecution came as a result. Another of those historians, Tacitus, records this event in Nero's response in a work entitled The Annals. And I'll I'll quote to you from Tacitus. 
To cut short the public outcry, Nero had to find someone guilty and blamed a race of men despised for the perversity of their rights and commonly called Christians. The name comes from Christus, Christ, who was put to death when Pontius Pilate was proconsul and procurator of Judea. Notice here you have a a non-Christian historian attesting to the reality that Jesus Christ was an actual person as the scripture says, um, sentence under Pontius Pilate. Now, this pernicious superstition has broken out anew, not only in Judea, the place of origin of the scourge, but even in Rome, where all that is shameful and abominable comes together and is accepted. At first were arrested those who openly confessed their belief. Then after their accusation, a great multitude were imprisoned, not just accused of having caused the fire, but because they were regarded as being burning with hatred against the human race. It's an amazing accusation to make of a Christian. Burning with hatred against the human race. They were put to death with refined cruelty, and Nero added scorn and derision to their sufferings, Tacitus says. Some were clad in the skins of wild beasts and thrown to the dogs to be devoured. Others were nailed to the cross others burned alive, and still others covered with inflammable material, which was then set on fire to serve as torches after sunset. Nero allowed his gardens on the Vatican Hill to be used for the spectacle, which also included circus games. As he proclaimed the opening of the circus games, he himself, driving a chariot and dressed as a charioteer, mingled with the crowds. And lastly, Tacitus says, although these punishments were against a blameworthy people who merited such original torments, there arose a sense of pity since they had been sacrificed not for the common good, but for the cruelty of a tyrant. Introduction to Nero. Also add to the fact that it was common in Roman times, which began with Julius Caesar, um, before the era of the emperors, that the one in power was considered to be divine. Emperor worship was a cult. And many of the emperors, including Nero, um, presented themselves as divine. With these things in mind, the question naturally arises, doesn't it? What response should a Christian have to human government and those who govern? What was the response to be to human, to the Christian, for the Christians towards a ruler and a government such as Nero in the Rome? Peter answers that question for us in five verses this morning, in chapter two, verse thirteen. And I think what we will see this morning is that the instruction within these verses, the timeless principles of the Word of God will be readily applicable to each one of us this morning as we seek to honor the Lord in every area of our life, including our relationship to human government. Look with me at verse 13. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish 
those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or slaves of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What should the response of a Christian be to human government and those who govern? Simply stated in verse 13, it is that we submit to them. We see the principle of submission coming through loud and clear, not just in these five verses that we've read this morning, but all the way through the book of 1 Peter. If you recall back to the introduction, submission is one of those key words that comes through in the epistle of Peter. We are to submit. The word there in verse 13 translated as be subject is the Greek word hupotasso. And it has this idea according to Kenneth Woost. It means to arrange, to arrange in military fashion under the command of a leader. It's a military term. You go into the army and you submit yourself to a strict regime of authority and submission, don't you? If someone asks you to jump, you ask how high. Orders, authority, submission within the army, this is the same word, the connotation, is the idea that we as Christians are to be in submission, to line up under the authority of the laws of the land. Interestingly, it's the same Greek word translated submission that's used of Jesus' own response to his parents in Luke's gospel when Jesus was at the age of 12. Any 12-year-olds here today? It's good to remember that Jesus knows what it's like to be a young person. Ever thought of that? He also experienced what it was like to submit to his parents, which he did always and perfectly. He understands. He showed showed us. In Luke 2, it says this, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Hupotasso. Submission is a significant principle in the Christian life. The same word, and it's used in verse 18, in First Peter 2, where it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. It's the same word used in chapter 3, verse 1, with regard to wives, the subject, hupotasso, in 3, verse 1, and also verse 5, for this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. In Colossians 3, verse 20, the Bible is very clear. Paul said that children are to obey their parents. Now, is there anyone in the world who is not a sinner? What's the answer? Anyone not a sinner in the world? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And it doesn't take much mental agility to move to this reality that if God is calling upon believers to submit to certain authorities in their life, then each one of those authorities are sinful, tainted human beings, right? As great as your boss is at work, he or she is a sinner. As wonderful as your parents are young people, they themselves, if they are believers, will confess to you that they too are sinners and that there are times when they will get things wrong. And so you're, you're in a situation here where we are called upon to submit to imperfect people. Is there any perfect husband? Absolutely not. You even have in chapter 3, which we're going to come to in coming weeks, a situation where a Christian lady could be in a situation where she's married to an unbelieving husband where the grace of God, is, the saving grace of God is not even within the life of her husband and Peter's instruction is that they are to submit even to an unbelieving husband for reasons that we'll talk about shortly. The summary statement is this, that by God's design in human life, he has established authority and patterns of life which promote order in society. Without such things, society would run amok. Anarchy would reign. So we are to submit. Even when the realm of the church, Hebrews 13 verse 17 says to the congregation, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. You say, well, okay, parents, children are to submit to parents. Slaves are to submit to their masters. Uh, wives are to submit to their husbands. Congregation is to submit to the church leaders. Um, but the flip side is also true that those church leaders, those husbands, those parents are also accountable to God, right? They are submitting to God and will have to give an account one day. And so will every human leader in government. See, submission is not a bad thing. Submission is God's design. Even in this non-sinless realm, with regard to non-fallen angels, there is evidence in Scripture that there are specific hierarchies of angels. That even among those angels that never fell, that there are arranged orderly hierarchy, hierarchies. Colossians 1.16 says this, Paul said, For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And by that, I think he's describing those angelic hierarchies. He just mentioned the word things invisible, and then he's delineating what those invisible things are, the angelic realms and thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, we even understand that there are archangel. There is an archangel, right? Um, Michael, the archangel. There are seraphs, seraphim in the plural. Um, there are cherubim, which we see even in the uh, Old Testament. And may I follow that up with the reality that even within the Trinity, within the members of the Godhead, there is authority and submission. Right? 
When Jesus came to this earth, was he God in human flesh? Absolutely. Was he co-equal, co-eternal with the Father? Absolutely. And yet Jesus' saying throughout his life was simply, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus himself submitted to the Father. I'll go a step further. Jesus himself submitted to the cruel, Roman, unjust trial which God had allowed in God's sovereignty for God's purposes, Jesus himself submitted to that same Roman government in his life. And he, as the end of chapter 2 says, provided for us an example to follow in his steps. You see, one of the things that comes out of this passage is that it reminds us that God's work in the world is not restricted to Sundays. God's work in the world is not restricted to church issues and spiritual issues. God's, God is sovereign because he is the God of the nations, right? We have such a small view of God sometimes, and we seem to think that God relates to Sunday, and I, I try and, tried many years to emphasize this in Christian education, that the God of the Bible and the God of Sunday is the God of everything in life whether it be politics or economics or ethics um, or law, God is the ultimate Lord of all. He's the creator. And he is at work within nations. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall because of God. Leaders rise up and they do not rise up to power apart from his knowledge. They're within the scope of his sovereign hand. You remember what Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.32? You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals, Nebuchadnezzar. You will eat grass like cattle and seven seasons or seven times, seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar became proud. Is this not the great Babylon that I have created by my own power? And God said, you're not going to get away with that. And he had to learn that his authority and his power was given to him by God. And just as easily God could take it away from him and did. But in his mercy, in a way that I can't comprehend, God was able after seven years of this guy eating with the mind of an animal, driven out, eating grass like a wild beast, God restored him to his throne. Can you imagine that? A sovereign leader reduced to that seven years later, he's restored. That is evidence of God's sovereign hand. He lifts up, he casts down, he's able to raise up again. And I really believe Nebuchadnezzar was a saved man at the end of that time. Glorified God, he walked humbly all his days. Even Pilate had to learn that. In his trial... With Christ in John 19, verse 10, Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In other words, don't you understand who I am? I'm Mr. Powerful. And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above.
Pilate was really rattled with Christ. He was a man in perfect, serene peace, standing before him, saying profound things. It's no wonder he was on edge. And I really believe that what Peter is writing here in verses 13 to 17 and this theme that comes through the book was learned through the teaching of Christ himself to Peter, particularly on one occasion. I want to just turn there. Um, My first point is going to be longer than every other point, so don't panic. Matthew 17. Do you think Peter would have been naturally submissive type from what you know? I don't think so. I think Jesus knew that. And he knew that if he was going to be a leader one day and Jesus was going to train him, Jesus needed to train him. Matthew 17 is one of those events. Verse 24. Heading in my Bible says the temple tax. It was a requirement that the Romans condoned whereby the Jewish leaders of the temple taxed their own people for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, and the Romans supported that. And so verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? What did he say? Yes. Peter affirmed that Jesus paid the temple tax. Now just think about that. Who was the temple for? It was for the worship of God. Jesus is God. He is Yahweh in human flesh. The temple at the time was not godly. The temple at the time was ruled by people that uh, were ungodly and were the people who would one day crucify, be responsible for having Jesus murdered. And yet Jesus paid the temple tax. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Isn't this interesting? The kind of conversation happened outside and Jesus in his omniscience knew what had just happened and there was an occasion to teach Peter something. So the way he did it was he asked a question which is one of the ancient teaching methods. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he had said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. The Roman emperor, the Roman government would take taxes from its citizens, among other things, to support their own family. So the son of Nero, or the sons of the emperors, those in authority, would be provided for, right, through the taxation of the citizens of the country, and therefore the sons of the emperor were exempt. Jesus understands perhaps the way Peter is thinking that because I'm a, I belong to God because I have freedom, I'm a citizen of heaven. Jesus says in verse 27, however, not to give offense to them, Peter, 
go to the sea and cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Verse 6, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Wouldn't you love to pay your taxes that way? You get to go fishing. It doesn't even say that the um, hook was baited, does it? It may have been. Jesus miraculously provided for his tax and Peter's in this very interesting situation. And the message to Peter was this, that Peter, just as I am willing to submit to a pagan, ungodly ruler and law, I will do that and you need to do that as well. I think the lesson is that God is saying here that in our responsibilities towards the government, God will enable us to fulfill those. God will enable us to live in society in such a way that we fulfill God's will for us, even in the area of our taxes. We are to live lives of submission. And Peter learned the lesson, and that's why he says here many years later, some some 30 years later, to believers to do the same. Let's look secondly at the sphere of submission. The sphere of submission. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You have two realms here. You have the emperor, the major leader, and then you have the governors, which are the minor, more minor authorities. So whatever Peter means by every human institution, he is defining now by the specifics of the emperor and the governors sent by the emperor in the course of keeping, keeping the law and governing the state. We get an insight here into the function of government. So what is to be the main function of human government? Peter says here, the governors are sent by the emperor, ultimately under the sovereign hand of God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That is a primary function of government. Now I know our government today has its finger in many pies, doesn't it? Many areas. You've got the ministry of X, Y, Z, and A, B, C, D, and so forth. And our taxes go into all these different areas. But biblically, the main function of government is stated right here. And that is to curb evil in society. How? By punishing the evildoer. By protecting the innocent from the one who will bring harm. Apart from that, in a sinful society, there will be anarchy. Take away the police force or corrupt the police force and society will go downhill very quickly. One writer said, men sometimes affect, men sometimes affect to deny the depravity of our race. But this is clearly taught in the lawyer's office and the courts of justice as in the Bible itself. Every prison and fetter and scaffold and bolt and bar and chain is evidence that man believes in the depravity of man. Who can deny that? Did you lock your house today on the way out? Did you lock your car out here? You believe in the depravity of man, if you did. 
If you forgot, I encourage you to go and do it. <laughs> the government is there to support that punishing of the evildoer and the protection and the encouragement to the one who does good. As you know, before I was married, and I'm glad it was before I was married and had kids, I lived in Los Angeles County for three years. Uh, not the flashiest area. Lived with three other American guys in a wood frame house in an area which is called North Hollywood. It sounds quite quite good, doesn't it? Lived in Hollywood, but we had gang members in our street. We had gunshots at night quite regularly. Um, drive-by shootings in the area. And uh, I know Andy and Catherine lived in a similar place in L.A. as well. It's just life there. I used to go to the bank, and it was on the corner of Van Nuys Boulevard and Roscoe Boulevard, First Interstate Bank. And that's where I used to get my money out, at the ATM machine. And it was a bit different going to the ATM machine there compared to Victoria Street, Hamilton. And I remember on a couple of occasions there being a patrol car with the LAPD officers there with a shotgun stand and a shotgun in it at the front of the car with two officers armed with holst- guns and holsters thereby, nearby. And that gave me a sense of confidence. I had a sense of freedom when that was the situation. And that, by God's design, they are there to protect us. They are there for the good of society and brothers and sisters we need to respect our police force we need to not call them certain names we need to rather pray for them because the one of the keys to the stability and the peace of our own nation lies within the proper functioning of the police force according to these verses here in fact if you go to romans chapter 13 we find there that they are actually called servants of god Ministers of God's wrath to inflict punishment upon the evil doer. They're an agent. They serve God, even though perhaps they're not believers themselves. God's function is that they serve him by being agents of wrath. And Paul says in Romans 13, which was written some 10 years before 1 Peter 2 here, tells us that they do not bear the what sword for nothing. In other words, God has given to government the authority to use the sword to take life in the situations where it is for the protection of the innocent and the order of society. The Bible upholds capital punishment as Jesus did even in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter took his sword to try and defend Christ. And Jesus said, put your sword away, Peter, for those who live by the sword, will perish by the sword. And and many Bible students would see there the upholding of capital punishment. If you commit murder by the sword, the state has the right and the responsibility to take life by the sword. It's very interesting. Titus chapter 3 verse 1 Paul said the similar thing, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now let me hasten to say this, that there is an exception. 
The principle is to submit. The principle is that we are to live good lives as good citizens, submitting ourselves to the state. That is to say, we are not to have a reputation for being rebels, not to have a reputation for being troublemakers. We are to line up under the authorities that God has established in our lives. But there is an exception, and the exception simply says this, as stated in Scripture, and as evidenced by even Peter himself in the book of Acts, and it's this, whenever government commands you to do something that is contrary to God's will, either in the prevention of you doing something which Scripture commands, or the forcing of you commanding you to do something that Scripture forbids. In such a situation, you take your direction from the higher authority, the higher throne, right? There is a higher throne than human government. And you obey God rather than Mean. In Acts chapter 4, verse 18, it says this, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, notice Peter's there, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In chapter 5, it says, When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. When it clearly is going to be a violation of God's will, revealed will, is revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture, we must, as Christians, follow God rather than than human government. But in all other situations, no matter how unreasonable they might seem to us, no matter what the imperfections of the leader himself, aren't you glad we don't, we don't have Nero as our Prime Minister? I don't believe John Key has murdered his own mother. But you can imagine just how radical this call was to these Christians of the first century who called them to honour the emperor. You say, what's the purpose of submission? Purpose of submission, verse 15. Peter just kind of unpacks the issue a little bit more for us. He says, for this is the will of God, watch this, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Christians were given a hard time. False accusations were made against them. Like even Tacitus records, they, they had a hatred for mankind in general. That wasn't true. In fact, they were the, the preservers of mankind, right? They were the salt and light of the earth. So how do, you, how do you put such accusations to silence? Do you do it by getting all wound up, aggressively, verbally defending these accusations? No. Peter says, you put them to silence. Literally, the word means to muzzle their mouths, by the kind of life you live. In other words, when you're submissive to the authorities, the powers that be, where they don't violate God's will, that has a positive testimony towards the outside world. This is the will of God for you. And often we get um, really puzzled sometimes about what's God's will, right? Right? Um, 
where I'm going to live, what university I'm going to go to, who I'm going to marry. Lord, please just reveal your will to me. And um, sometimes it can be a bit confusing. And sometimes I would say unnecessarily so. Sometimes unnecessarily so. There's many places in the Word of God where it's crystal clear what the will of God is. And here is one of these places. This is the will of God. You're to be subject to governing authorities. This is the will of God. And by doing that, you put to silence, you muzzle the mouths of those who have false things to say about Christians. So here's the, here's the punch here. We are to be missionaries in our world, right? Regardless of whether we are overseas serving as missionaries, right here in Hamilton City, we are to be called to be missionaries. Amen? And one of the ways, one of the necessary things about that role as a missionary is that we are to be submissionary missionaries. That is to say, the platform upon which we proclaim the gospel with our mouths has got to come from a testimony and a reputation that the world understands and sees that we are submissive to the authorities. We're good citizens. We're not known as those who seek to cause trouble unnecessarily. or That um, should be true, and that's true of a church leader, right? He must have a good reputation with, what's the word? Outsiders. Not just what the church thinks of a church leader, it's what even the world thinks. Are they known for their righteous life and their good citizenship? Let's get very practical here. I just took a few examples How about driving a car? Let's let's put some rubber on the road here in a double sense. Speed limits. Speed limits. You see a speed limit sign or you know that there is a speed limit and you guys have got maybe your learner's license or your restricted license. There's certain laws, certain... <coughs> Um, requirements which are in connection with those licenses, aren't there? You need to be home at a certain time. You're not allowed certain passengers in your car, or there's many things there. What do we do with those? Well, if you're a Christian and you want to follow the Lord, you need to submit to every one of those. Without question. That is the will of God for you. You say, it's so hard. It's so unreasonable. Why should I have to have a learner's license for so long. Back in your day, Brian, you got it after just one past exam. Full license, done. Yeah, but I failed twice before I got it. (laughs) What about double yellow lines and passing? What about parking fees in local council, filling parking meters? Warrant of fitness requirements. I'm not going to check. (laughs) Registration, drinking and driving laws, cell phone usage. It's pretty practical, isn't it? Anyone feeling convicted today? What about the idea of a radar detector? If you... If you're taking the following these this pattern, 
Does a radar detector have any place in a Christian's car? What about taxes, due dates, honesty and filling in details, courtesy and dealing with the IRD, Aaron? <laughs> Copyright laws, music, DVDs. <laughs> CDs. Our own MPs, how do we treat them? Do we have respect for them? Do we honor them? Doesn't mean we have to agree with them. We can write letters, right? We can um, discuss things amicably and in a winsome way and do what we can to bring change and things that are more honoring for the Lord and things that um, make our life perhaps more just in the land. We have channels through which we can do that, but ultimately we need to honor these people. Plenty to think about there and whatever. One of the reasons I don't like specifically giving applications in a sermon is because I can never imagine what's going on in your heart. And I really believe that as you dish out the word, the Spirit of God will take it, and if there's something in your mind right at the moment where you are aware that you're out of submission, to God in regard to what we're talking about here this morning, I I counsel you to get that right. Make that right. Be a good citizen. Fourthly, the kind of submission. This is pretty crucial. Um, Made a mistake on the PowerPoint there. Verse 16 is where I'm looking. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now here's the thing you need to understand. There's two ways that you could have a wrong, take this the wrong way. One would be that, okay, I'm going to submit to the government and the government is my ultimate Lord. That's, that's not what Peter's saying. It's like we've got to have a cringeworthy, servile submission to the government because government is the ultimate authority. No, no, no. You are free in Christ. There is a higher throne beyond government to whom you are ultimately responsible to, okay? The flip side would be saying, putting all the emphasis on the fact that I'm free, I'm a citizen of heaven, I can live however I want and flout the laws of the land because, hey, I'm a Christian. I answer to God and I will not submit to the governing authorities. That is wrong. And that's what Peter is saying here when he says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't say that you're free and yet use that as a justification for your disobedience and lack of submission to government. Live as slaves of God. You're a servant of God. And because he ultimately tells you to submit to governing authorities, that is the reason you do it. Verse 13, submit, be subject for the Lord's sake. You see that? It's for the Lord's sake. You do it because you want to honor him. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. It's the same word, hupotasso, rank under God. Is it possibly true that sometimes the reason we have a hard time submitting to the authorities that God has placed in our life, whether it be family, home, workplace, whatever, government, underlying reason could be that we're not ultimately submissive to God. 
Instead of a pious reason, therefore I'm not going to submit, I'm not going to do what such and such authority says in my life because of a pious reason, perhaps the opposite thing is actually true. We're not doing it because we're really not as pious as we should be because if we really love God and are obedient to God, we would submit to the authority God has placed in our life. Lack of submission to authorities means a lack of submission ultimately to God. By the way, every person is a slave to some master. Every person in this room today is either a slave to Christ or a slave to their own sinfulness. John 8, Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God, and then it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's one of two masters you can have. It's either God, you're one who's submitted to him, or you are under the authority of Satan. You belong to him in the kingdom of darkness. And the message of the gospel is, praise God, there is freedom offered, there is redemption offered from slavery to sin and slavery to to Satan in the person and work of Christ. And if you're in that situation today and you know it, come to Christ. He is the greatest master to have. It's great being a slave of Christ. You know why? Because he is loving. He is kind. He is merciful. He is always just. He's perfect. Blessed bondage. Well, in summary, Peter says in verse 17, he summarizes it this way. Honor everyone. And literally, honor all. Okay? All people. All different types of people. Slave or free. Jew or Greek. Rich or poor, this goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? We're all made in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Growing up in the Brethren Church, I used to attend every boys' rally. Anyone else go to boys' rally here? The rally motto. Remember the rally motto? If you wanted to become a member of rally, you had to learn one or two verses. One was the rally motto, and here it is right here in verse 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Back in my day, it was honor the queen. I think they kind of just tweaked that a little bit with Queen Elizabeth, but <coughs> this is where it came from. First command is honor everyone. There's no room for prejudice. There's no no room for racial uh, prejudice in the life of a Christian. We are called to honor everyone. Secondly, love the brotherhood. Brotherhood is the word that Peter uses for church. He shies away from using the word church, but he he uses this word brotherhood here and also in chapter 5. Here's a call to love believers within society. By this will all people know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, right? So you honor all people, regardless of whether they're believers or not, but there is to be a love, a distinctive love, toward the brotherhood, which includes, obviously, the sisters, females, and males who are believers. And then fear God. Fear God and honor the emperor. It's interesting to me that he's put those two things very close together. You are to fear God, but you're not to fear the emperor. 
fear, the idea is that you reverence God supremely. It's the idea that you worship God, but you don't worship the emperor, but you do give him honor. And remember I said before that emperor worship was common in those days, and Peter, as it were, is just putting things in the right perspective here. Honor the emperor, but don't worship him. Fear God. Fear God. This is a practical message, uh, folk, and I trust it's not just giving out of teaching what the Word of God says. We need to be not self-deceived hearers. We need to take what God has given us here and start to live the way He has called us to live, right? For this is the will of God for us. In the words of Jesus, as I close, Matthew 22, verse 21, we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That's our calling. Let's ask God's help to help us in this.